Hello, my name is Russell Warren. I head up the tax team at Travis Smith. I would like to welcome you to the 11th episode in our Travelling Seamlessly Global Mobility podcast series. In this series, members of the Travis Smith Global Mobility team will talk to you about the implications of moving your people and operations into and out of different countries, and also look at the situations where members of your team may need to work in more than one country. In our previous episodes, we've discussed the tax issues that can arise for employees coming to the UK for short periods of time, the rules that apply to non-resident directors that come to the UK, and when an overseas remote working creates a taxable presence for the employer. In this episode, Siv Devakumar and Holly Norman will be talking about the corporate tax resident test for UK and non-UK incorporated companies. Their practical tips on how to maintain UK tax residents will be of equal interest to directors and shareholders with both UK and non-UK resident companies in a multinational group. To find out more about the issues discussed in this podcast, the Travis Smith Global Mobility Team, and how we can help you with your global mobility projects, you can visit our website www.traversmith.com and search for Global Mobility. And now over to Siv and Holly. Hello and welcome to the latest podcast in the Global Mobility series. I'm Siv Devakumar, a senior associate in our transaction tax team here at Travis Smith. And I'm Holly Norman, an associate in our asset management tax team. Today, Holly and I are going to talk about the UK corporate tax residence test. The main focus of the podcast will be on the key practical considerations multinational teams or groups should bear in mind if they want a company, especially a non-UK incorporated company, to be UK tax resident. But Holly, let's give our listeners some background first. Why does corporate tax residence matter? So corporate tax residence is important because it determines where a company is liable to tax on its profits. Broadly speaking, a company is only subject to UK corporation tax if one of three scenarios applies. One, it's a UK tax resident company. Two, it's a non-UK resident company, but it has a permanent establishment which is generating trading profits in the UK. Or three, it's a non-UK resident company making profits or gains in relation to UK land. So we're going to focus on scenario one in relation to UK tax residents today. As an aside, if you'd like to hear more about how a UK permanent establishment can be created, especially from a global mobility angle, you can listen to episode four in this series. So turning to UK tax resident companies, what's the domestic law test, Siv? A company will be UK tax resident under UK law if it's incorporated in the UK or if it's a non-UK incorporated company, its central management and control is exercised in the UK. Before we dig into the CMC test, it's worth mentioning that a company can also be tax resident under the domestic law of another jurisdiction at the same time. A so-called dual resident company would then be exposed to potential double taxation risk. This is most typically managed under the double tax treaty between the two relevant countries, if there is one. The treaty will contain a tiebreak clause to determine which country gets to claim that company as its resident. However, in some jurisdictions, domestic law resolves the dual residence issue. Taking a Guernsey incorporated company, for example, if its central management and control is in the UK and it's treated as UK tax resident, then under Guernsey domestic law, it's not regarded as Guernsey tax resident. But as I said, today we want to focus on the UK law angle and the central management and control test in particular. 
So Holly, taking our Guernsey Incorporated operating company as an example, who I'm going to imaginatively call OPCO, what is the CMC test it needs to pass to be UK tax resident? Thanks, Siv. So central management and control is a case law test which asks where OPCO's real business is carried on, meaning the place where decisions about the strategic policy and direction of the company are taken, as opposed to where the day-to-day -day operations are. So the first step is to work out where the non-UK jurisdiction's local law vests the power to manage the, and control the OPCO. Guernsey is like the UK, so the articles usually give OPCO's board of directors that power. Therefore, the place of central management and control will often be the place where those directors meet to manage OPCO's business, i.e. usually where the board meetings are held. If things are straightforward, so all board meetings are held in the UK, the directors are resident in the UK, and the actual business operations, including all assets and functions, are in the UK, then OPCO's CMC is in the UK and HMRC shouldn't prod any further. However, the CMC test is multifactorial, so if the situation is more complicated, then holding board meetings in the UK alone won't be a conclusive factor. When would OPCO's situation be more complicated, Siv? The tricky part is that the revenue and the courts look to the actual place of management. So even if the directors are exercising central management control over OPCO, HMRC would still seek to check where they are actually exercising such power, which remember might not necessarily be where they formally meet. Or if the directors can't prove they factually exercise central management control over OPCO, HMRC would look to establish who exercises it instead and where. The latter could happen, for example, where an individual, such as the chairman, or a group of persons, such as a committee comprising certain but not all board members, is actually making the most important decisions for OPCO. And the board of directors are then merely rubber stamping decisions in formal board meetings. In that case, central management control would be in the place where that individual or group exercises power. One of the most common scenarios, of course, is where de facto control is exercised by OPCO's parent. Say, for instance, its Irish resident parent company acting through its Irish resident directors. If the Irish parent exercises OPCO's management and control independently of or without regard to OPCO's board, then regardless of the fact that sort of abdication of their functions by the board is unlawful and not authorised under its constitution, OPCO's central management and control would be in Ireland rather than the UK. Listeners will appreciate that as it's a factual test, central management control will always turn on the facts of the situation rather than purely legal concepts. Holly, can you fill in some more background on our OPCO example, and then we can talk through what practical steps OPCO's board of directors and its Irish parents should take to ensure it remains a UK tax resident? Sure. So let's assume OPCO was originally established as a Guernsey resident company by two Guernsey tax resident individuals when they founded a new business back in 2019. During the pandemic, they employed some UK individuals, but they remain the only directors. So let's assume that OPCO remained Guernsey tax resident at that time. The founders are now in negotiations to sell OPCO to an Irish company at the end of this year. The plan is for the Guernsey tax resident founders to stay on as directors of the OPCO board, but the Irish parent wants to appoint a new chairman. The founders and Irish parent also want to expand the footprint of the business in the UK, and so want to move the tax residents of OPCO to the UK. As a Guernsey Incorporated company that's used to being Guernsey tax resident, what should OPCO do to ensure its central management and control is exercised in the UK after the sale so it can be treated as UK tax resident? 
We already discussed earlier that as a Guernsey company, Opco's directors exercise its powers of central management and control under its constitution. The question, therefore, is whether, as a factual matter, the board actually exercise those powers and whether they do that in the UK. By that, I mean what actually happens and what evidence is there. So, Holly, should we run through our list on what should be done in practice? What's best? So, I'd start with board composition, given Opco's history. The founders are Guernsey tax resident, but ideally the board should be at least majority UK tax resident. It would also be best if the chairman that the Irish parent wants to bring in is also UK tax resident. They should therefore appoint at least two other UK resident directors, say from amongst their senior employees. In all cases, the directors need to have the necessary knowledge, experience and expertise to consider rather than merely follow proposals and to make decisions. Expertise shouldn't just be concentrated in the Guernsey founders alone, and in a similar vein, the articles should provide that non-UK resident directors cannot alone form a quorum or pass resolutions. Agreed, which takes us to board reserve matters. This will be tailored to what the appropriate acts of management are for OPCO and its business, but the basic point is that all key actions should be subject to board approval and decided at properly constituted board meetings of OPCO. Where discretionary powers have been delegated to any person, including a director, such as one of the founders, that power should only relate to day-to-day -day affairs and should not include the power to make key decisions. Power should be confined within parameters set by the board and regular critical review should be undertaken. The board can, and when it's appropriate, absolutely should seek advice from their professional advisors or consider recommendations from the Irish parent, but final decisions must be taken at board meeting, not in informal meetings beforehand. This is so that the board isn't just rubber stamping decisions which have already been taken elsewhere, especially if that's in a different jurisdiction. Thanks, Siv. The next thing to get right is board procedure, which breaks down into location, frequency and records. So, starting with location, the location of all OPCO's board meetings should be in the UK. This means that the directors should join in person or else by phone or video conference from a UK location. No director should ever dial in from a non-UK jurisdiction, especially not Guernsey. But this is acceptable where necessary, provided it's not a regular occurrence and a quorum of present in the UK. Next, frequency. Board meetings should be regular and at least quarterly, and otherwise frequent enough to enable the directors to decide on the board reserved matters and exercise control over the strategic affairs of the company. Finally, records. An agenda should be circulated before board meetings and detailed contemporaneous minutes should be taken of each meeting. Deliberations over particular matters should be set out in full. Sid, is there anything else you would add in relation to board meeting records? I think there are a couple of elephant traps Opco would want to steer clear of, especially given the presence of the Guernsey resident founders, the history of the company's Guernsey tax resident and the new Irish parent. Ahead of any board meeting, the draft agenda and any board pack setting out the issues to be discussed and information to take into account should ideally not be drafted in Guernsey. Ideally, the board decision wouldn't be taken by written resolution. And if it has to be, it should be clearly recorded that it was signed in the UK only. Similarly, any documents related to decisions made at board meetings should be executed and retained in the UK only. Finally, the board of directors should ensure that they use their unfettered discretion in relation to whether or not to approve any key decision. And this should be explained in the board meeting, recorded in the minutes, 
and importantly, reflected in all the evidence, such as other emails and written correspondence. This will be most important where they are considering recommendations made by the Irish parent, as it goes back to our original point about needing to show that it's the board making the decisions as a matter of actual fact and not anyone else. Holly is being a wholly owned subsidiary of the Irish parent and inevitably having to take into account the Irish parent's wishes a problem. Not in and of itself, no. The case law around this recognises that it's a commercial reality that a parent company influences the actions of a wholly owned subsidiary. What OPCO will need to be careful about is ensuring influencing doesn't become, or seem on paper to become, dictating what OPCO does, such that the OPCO board no longer actively and independently considers and makes the decisions, and instead rubber stamps its parents' decisions. If this becomes the case, the place of central management and control might instead be where the parent is located, regardless of whether the board of OPCO is holding all their board meetings to rubber stamp decisions in the UK. Taking a not uncommon example, if the Irish parent wants OPCO to do a bolt-on acquisition and has found a proposed target, Siv, how can the Irish parent communicate this and how can OPCO agree to do it without abdicating central management and control to its parent? The central point is the Irish parent should be making a recommendation but not issuing instructions or audits. So this means the OPCO board should have its own board meetings, both to consider whether to pursue the acquisition and ultimately to resolve to enter into the relevant transaction documents. For them to do that properly, they need to have sufficient knowledge to make that decision actively. They therefore should be involved in due diligence and negotiation of the transaction documents, for example. As part of that, they should engage advisors directly if possible, or else have the benefit of their advice and consider it properly in their board meetings. The board should also be clear on what the commercial and corporate rationale is for entering into the transaction, even if the corporate benefit is for the group as a whole rather than just for OPCO individually. All of this should be shown in the board minutes and also reflected across all the written contemporaneous communications at the time. The revenue and the courts have been clear that they won't rely on what the board minutes say if witness evidence and other written communications, such as internal group correspondence or exchanges with advisors, tell a different story. Thanks, Siv. So that brings us to the end of our list and today's podcast, I think. We hope this has been a helpful briefing on the key practical steps multinational groups should take to ensure a UK tax resident company maintains its UK residence, especially where it is non-UK incorporated. Thank you for listening. And if you have any questions or would like to know more, you can reach Holly and me or the other members of the Global Mobility Team through the Travis Smith website. 